This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, in the first part of what we hope will be a multi-part series on different leftist groups in the United States, we invite on a guest from the Democratic Socialists of America to talk about the organization with us. So, without further ado, we present The Joy of Sects, 1. The DSA. I'm Jake, I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Lexi. Hey, it's Lexi in permanent third period mode. Donald? It's uh, Donald uh, in the swamp. Uh, Patrick? Hello, it's Patrick with nothing clever to say, as usual. And tonight we have a special guest joining us, uh, Andy from the DSA. Hey, yeah, Andy, DSA member for four years. So one thing that we're going to try to do in the show, usually we just kind of talk about either like random news topics or we pick a piece to read and discuss that piece. Um, but I'd like for us to like start a series where we just kind of talk generally about different far left groups in the United States. Um, and I thought that the DSA would be a good one to start with, given it's you know sort of recent growth uh, in popularity via, I think, Something has, has some of it has to do with Jacobin and the sort of explosive popularity of uh, Chapo Trap, Trap House. Um, also, the sort of success of the Bernie Sanders campaign um, and the fact that he never like disavowed the label like uh, Democratic Socialist and was able to find uh, a lot more success in the primaries than anybody thought uh, possible. Um, and so, yeah, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the DSA and. Um, and have somebody on and they could maybe give us an inside view of what the organization is like and what they're currently doing and what they see as the uh, trajectory and trends of it currently. So I guess maybe the first question I would ask Andy is um, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and why you got involved in the DSA and uh, what you're doing currently. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I'm a women's college grad I was kind of on the Tumblr left after college, uh, and you know, that's gross, but um, I got invited to this labor hip hop solidarity show being put on by a young democratic socialist chapter near my town and uh, went and then just kind of got sucked in. And I've been active. I was, I served as chair for my chapter for three years and gratefully this year I've been able to step back a little bit. And, like, in that period, like, what have you observed in terms of, like, the development of the organization, um, maybe just broadly or at least in your own experience? Well, um, yeah, when I started, when I joined, the average age in the organization was 65 years old. So uh, that's really changed radically. Um, it's kind of hard to say, other than last year, there were maybe five of us who were showing up regularly to meetings, you know, kind of your more normal sect sort of activity. 
um, we're kind of in a lull. And then this year we get 40 people every time we call a meeting. <laughs> Um, and they're not all the same people, and it's just been kind of um, just a process of dealing with that growth and creating a democratic system around it. Um, yeah, because has that been continuous, like in recent months? Because I know pretty much like it seems like pretty much every leftist group uh, got kind of like a Trump bump once he got elected, and a lot of people like even at CLT, like as small as we are, we saw like a pretty large influx of people like showing up to our reading groups, like, you know, interested all suddenly and, you know, looking at some kind of like, you know, alternative politics. Or has that been something that, has that momentum from like the Trump election carried through um, even into the summer? Oh, it's still going for us, for sure. Um, we've basically built up our committees. We've had a couple new members orientations and we've just been plugging people in you know, using Slack for communication when we're not meeting. And yeah, new people keep showing up and people aren't leaving. Boom, Slack for communism, that's dope. <laughs> that's interesting because in um, the Communist League, we also have a, a group chat and uh, that's kind of uh, where we all kind of plan stuff ad hoc when necessary. And, and so like, what, interesting sorry. that the other groups are using the group chat as like a, a tool well i remember i was involved in occupy too and it was like the same thing and like one thing that happened like occupy was a lot was you know super hyper decentralized and super informal and so what what often happened would be like you know so, like fights would break out like in real life based on shit that happened on facebook <laughs> but yeah. uh does that actually happen or is that because like i don't know if that was just like something that was like occupy was you know like a giant shit show but did, is this has that been uh, something you've been dealing with as you've been like growing uh, well, we really emphasize like Joe Freeman's tyranny of structurelessness and really uh, trying to avoid the hell out of that. Um, but yeah. we still come across it, of course, because we were a pretty informal organization before we suddenly were, uh, I mean, only twice the size on paper, but at least four or five times the size in terms of people who are active on a day-to-day -day basis. Has like this change in size like shifted? Like, how has that shifted your strategy? Like, are, have you undertaken new campaigns, or have you like has what kind of new pot? Like, has that has it like led to like a somewhat of like a, re a strategic reorientation, or like what are your what kind of current campaigns are you guys working on, or what are you, what are you guys cooking up basically? Yes, what I'm most optimistic about is probably our housing work. Um, you know, I want to get on doors for that. We we have you know kind of imitated the East Bay campaign a little bit and trained some canvassers, worked with the nurses, hit doors about SB 562 for healthcare. But it wasn't like in the East Bay, they had a hundred socialists on doors talking about SB 562. We didn't have anything like that kind of turnout. Um, that's, pretty, that's pretty huge. Yeah. Um, and they're literally, they do it as open socialists. It blows my mind. Like yeah. we're actually having that many one-on-one -on -one conversations about class issues. And, uh, where, where are you guys based out of again? I'm sorry. I think oh, I'm in I'm in Sacramento. Okay. Okay. Um, and what kind like and by housing? Like, what do you mean specifically? Because I know there's like a lot of different like approaches to like the question of housing. Like, what are you guys um, doing exactly? I mean, uh, we're personally we're in a coalition with like ACE, which is uh, what used to be Acorn. Um, and also tenants together, 
and we're just trying to kind of target some complexes and get some tenants activated and sort of see where it goes. There's another group calling them calling themselves Sacramento Socialists, kind of aiming towards that sort of Philly Socialist vibe. They just came out of like a dissolved Socialist Alternative chapter. Um, and they really have their eyes on a tenants union, but I don't know where they're at with it. Okay, yeah, so it's yeah, you're, kind of, you're kind of aiming towards like a ten, so like a tenants union kind of thing. Is that mm -hmm. is that kind of okay? Got it. Yeah, there seems to be like another kind of tendency developing, like with Philly socialist groups and Austin Socialist Collective. These kind Kentucky of like big Workers Kentucky Workers League, yeah, and they kind of um have this uh activist almost approach that I'm not completely convinced of. Like there's a lack of um dedication to like a political program and, and a lack of like also just um stuff they do, I mean, might as well do some kind of electoralism, in my opinion. Well, I that actually leads my, to, my, to my next question, like, um, what, what do you see, okay, so this is like the campaign locally, like, what do you see, like, DSA's role being, like, maybe on, like, a national level or, like, a broader political level? Is the idea, like, sort of build up, try and work to, like, sort of build up, like, bases of political power through, like, these local campaigns, and maybe in time that will translate to something bigger, or... You know, I think the big the big question that we have, and you know, a big source of like our skepticism vis-a-vis -vis the DSA is its relationship to the Democratic Party. So, did you have any thoughts on that, or? Well, I uh, per I have a really funny relationship to the Democratic Party because, uh, like, my parents, who I'm living with right now, are both um, kind of muckety mucks. But so I play with the Dems a little bit, but. Um, I mean, my goal or my my vision, like on my most hopeful day for DSA, is that we're kind of like a pre-party formation. And so, yeah, the the goal I see, I mean, in my Democratic Party work, my goal is to like heighten the contradictions within the party, coalesce a working class uh, wing that will be ready, will have like socialists within its leadership and will be ready to move into like a real workers party. Um, my, the work outside of that, like DSA, building DSA, like the reason we do campaigns like workers, or I mean like renters rights, is because we're really only reaching like this layer of people, kind of like what Harrington was talking about in that piece, even though he was talking about, you know, the 60s and 70s. But like the tech, tech folks is really who I saw get sort of activated after the election is just the left wing of tech bros. I mean, on some, on, yeah, yeah, on some level, I mean, it makes a certain degree of sense that, you know, the people who would be at least in, like, you know, people at first interested like in socialism would come, you know, from like the petty bourgeois strata. And we could talk a little bit about this later because I know in the Harrington piece that um, you're referring to, he, he sort of, um, he argues a particular kind of idea of like what classes and like how it's structured and how it, it even argues a little bit against like trying to dry, draw like fine class distinctions. But yeah, I don't anyway, yeah, like it, it makes sense that like the more educated strategy would would be interested like in these kind of you know sort of utopian ideas of remaking society broadly. But the question is like how do you how do you then connect with the like you know, with workers and with the broader working class 
um, beyond these, uh, beyond that sort of, I guess you could say, middle class or petty bourgeois strata. Um, and that's, you know, that's a question that I think, you know, everybody has to, uh, has to deal with. And we do do a lot of education work, actually, like, we'd started to get back on our feet as a chapter before the Trump bump, um, just by holding, like, twice a month socialist feminist reading groups. Um, and we were drawing in, like, a lot of women and like a pretty diverse crowd and we were just going over a couple articles every week and doing a really free-form discussion around it. That's cool. So. Did um, did anyone else have any questions or? We've got Grant here. Oh, yeah. yeah, Grant is um here finally. Hi. Hardly. All right. So um, I was just going to ask what your opinions on the left caucus that there's a couple of documents of that was describing itself as a left caucus for the DSA that I saw. Mm. And I'm not sure how developed this actual left caucus is, but I'm wondering if like you have any thoughts regarding that. And I'm honestly just kind of curious, like what there is to it. My thoughts aren't that well put together about it. I was I am like a founding member, I think. Um, like I was there on the ground floor when people started gathering folks up for the left caucus, but um, it's a it's an email list, um, and it's made up of some great people. You know, we have elected leadership, we have um, initiatives, sort of. We have candidates uh, within the organization, um, but it's tenuous. Um, and I don't know if it makes sense in its current form, given the growth in the organization, because the growth of the left caucus certainly hasn't kept pace, because uh, kind of the DSA, like um, elders, leadership, um, really don't like the idea of caucuses forming within DSA. And so it's been uh, very touchy to kind of be a public part of the organization. Um, so growth has been slow and really a lot of our initial goals for the organization have passed already. <laughs> like we've, we've won a lot of stuff. Um, well, one of like the, I mean, uh, I'm just looking at kind of like the main document that's uh, available online via Google Docs. Is it our old uh, platform? Like yeah, it says, platform it says it adopted August, 2014. Yeah. Um, but as yeah, I was looking through it, like which of, like, because I know like uh, I guess a consistent graphic design was developed. Um, yeah, we got that one. And then, uh, but was there was there ever like a set of points of unity for the organization that was ever like put forward? Because um, I, I tried to find something like that on the website, but I couldn't seem to locate anything. I mean, there I was mean, a there was a recent like strategy document that was put out, but I would I would point towards the strategy document. That was something that was put together. You know, one of one of the leaders in the left caucus was the leader of that kind of program. And it was a process which, you know, happened when we were a third or less of the organization that we are now, but where we had a series of like Google Hangouts with where we draw members in and discuss various points on a platform and, um, and then we had like actual regional conferences where we got people together in person and then we all teleconferenced in um, and just hashed, hashed that strategy document out together. So 
I know you said that, okay, so there's a, like this influx of growth of like people coming in and the left caucus hasn't really been growing to match that. But would you say, I mean, of this like in growth influx of people, um, what kind of seems to be like the ideological tendencies? Do you think that they're like receptive to these ideas or do you think that they kind of agree with them already? Or would you say that the influx of people is to the left of like the current leadership or what do you, what do you make of kind of like the politics of, of, you know, the growth of the organization or the people, the newbies entering into the organization? I mean, first I'd say that something interesting about the left caucus is it's really almost as multi-tenancy as the organization itself. So, you know, we've got anarchists thrown in with Marxist-Leninists and Trotskyists, like, it's not that coherent. But um, also, the folks coming in, a mixed bag, because uh, I definitely talked to people, I've definitely talked to like an ex-ISO member who joined because he felt like we were doing like real work on the ground instead of arguing about the Russian Revolution all day. Um, you know, I but I've also met a ton of people who just came out of the Bernie Sanders movement. And I worked for Bernie um, as staff, and that was, yeah, I was definitely kind of alone as a socialist <laughs> in that movement a lot of the time. Uh. But uh, people are ready to learn, I think. And I, that's, that's the way I would look at our new members, is there's a lot of political education that needs to go on. Yeah, I think um, that's kind of the focus of the Communist League at this point is just political education and trying to draw people in on that level. So, um, I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Lexi. Oh, yeah, I, I, uh, I kind of want to be a little indulgent and introduce uh, some of the Mike McNair's thought here. Mike McNair is sort of the central intellectual of this vague neo-Kautskyist tendency, and he has this uh, political spectrum, this communist political spectrum, socialist political spectrum that he put together that I feel like is, I don't know, it's somewhat useful to me. And it has a left, a center, and a right. Uh, the left is like electoral abstentionism, autonomism, being against the state. Um, the right wing is sort of like doing coalition with bourgeois forces as long as they're like prog relatively progressive and doing reform efforts that, you know, reformist reforms, non-reformist reforms, just like, just to have a fairer economy. And, um, and then the center would be a sort of, I don't know, it's almost a metaphysical kind of position because it's not abstentionist on the one hand because it's, it's doing like a, a sort of limited electoralism, um, but sort of shying away from executive power because for, you know, basically left communist reasons. And then, um, but also wanting to build like independent working class institutions and mm -hmm. kind of having a, not having less of like a consequentialist and like potentially utilitarian approach about it, having more of like a, a duty bound approach of like, look, we cannot the break bread with the Democratic Party, which um, mm -hmm. I see both of these. I don't know. I, I, I think this is just like um, one of these like moral dilemmas that no abstract theory is going to like tell you how to deal with. You kind of just have to like feel it out in your experience. Um, and, you know, I really think that this, I don't know, I kind of see you in a, in a perhaps like the right socialist uh, uh, category here, but I don't know, like 
you're really you're like a socialist though, and you really do want actually what the the center wants. You want class independent institutions. You just think that the only way to do real work today, uh, if I'm getting you right, is to you know kind of break bread with what is there, the only active political forces that are out there. Um, and the the thing I see in common between the neo Kautskyist tendency, the kind of center here, and the and the right. And that I would say that the DSA represents with you know it within the political spectrum of socialism, is that um, that a political effort can um, basically some sort of breathe life into uh, an an inert kind of economic base in the absence of people fighting for themselves like or or at least finding like forms of collective struggle that can spread. That um, that I, I see a kind of sense of a weight on political agency, there. That both both of you kind of share. Um, that I don't know. I think is is interesting. And when there was a critique of um, I think that was Donald talking about the Philly Socialists and Kentucky Workers League and that tendency. I actually kind of admire the the efforts at base building that they're doing because. Uh, as as important as I think, like the single payer campaign has been, and um, and really just everything that it sounds like the DSA is doing right now, is I, I do think that there has to be independent working class institutions to undergird an ind- independent working class political institution. There there has to be some kind of social glue within. Uh, working class life that isn't dominated by the new class the new new class as harrington puts it like yeah, yeah. there's got to be something and and the the democratic party for a lot of people for the left for the communist left and for communist center is definitely you know like for a lot of us we've encountered it as a force that's that i don't know that subsumes opposition that doesn't allow this to happen yeah, to uh, to interject, I mean, it's not just uh, a matter of ideological purity on that front. I mean, the Democratic Party has proven itself to be such a dead end. Uh, Grant, Red Party here, sorry, I'm the late cast member. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, I mean, this is, that's, that's actually what sketches me out about the whole thing is that, you know, my nightmare scenario is like watching the kind of current, the currents that are trending away from you know, centrist liberalism and cent- even away from the Democratic Party are just going to basically end up rechanneled right back into it. And, you know, I've been on the left for, I guess, maybe a couple of activist cycles now, and I see that happen. I've, I've seen that happen like twice. And so, like, my fear here is that, you know, if there isn't like a clear plan at some point to, uh, to fundamentally either break with the Democratic Party or literally destroy the Democratic Party to replace it with something else. Like, we're just going to... No, I'm, I'm not joking. Like, we're just going to end up... How? It's like a corporate entity. It's so diffuse. No, you, you do need to break from the Democratic Party. You absolutely do. Yeah, I mean, you mean, but how do you destroy it? In an era... How do you destroy it? By, by yeah, um, becoming, becoming the new mass party. Wait, what, what, was that? what was that, Andy? I said my goal is much more to destroy it. Like, I live in, like, the contradiction of the Democratic Party every day. It's a fucking mess. Like, there are real people in the Democratic Party. There are lots of working class people in the Democratic Party. And, um, you know, they're upset. And 
I right. don't think I'm, there's I'm, an alternative I'm, available to them right now, and that's yeah, that's what's disheartening. And I yeah. there really isn't. Like it's it's really like not in reach for most people that there's an alternative. That's what's made uh, like the political spectrum of our lifetime so suffocatingly small. And that's the central problem of organization we have to overcome. Can I can I go on like a crank yeah. like rambling about Bernie Sanders for a couple minutes? Is that all right? <laughs> I, all right. I, as, I as, yes, as, as long rambling, as I'm I'm okay with that, but I want to be in the queue for crank rambling too. All right. As yeah, okay. Okay. So like a lot of you know a lot of I mean Bernie Sanders I think is probably I mean. You talked about that there was some growth prior to that, but I mean, probably prior to that too. But like the Sanders campaign was in the ascendancy that was going on for like a year and a half, and like I think that he, you know, did do some work to sort of repopularize the idea of at least, you know, like maybe trying to emulate like Swedish social democracy or you know, or as he called it, like democratic socialism. Mm -hmm. um, but like the the con the contradiction of Bernie Sanders because I I read about his book. I read his I read his book rather, and he basically yeah. like just. What's that? Sorry, I said, oh, why would you do that? <laughs> uh, I, curiosity, curiosity. But he, so he describes like his efforts as like mayor of uh, Burlington, right? And he basically ran on an independent ticket and then won. But he had a city council that was pretty much was Republicans and Democrats, and they worked to together basically to undermine him. So he basically got a bunch of his own people in on city council from his own party, and then he was able to do whatever he wanted. And so this brief period, at least then I have to take his word for it because this is how he's describing it. But for this brief period, you basically had like sewer socialism in Vermont, you know, at, in the middle of like the Reagan era. And he literally actually brags at one point about like the retrofitting they did to the sewers there. <laughs> but <laughs> what then what happened was, though, instead of like instead of building that base and trying to build up the political party that they were developing in Vermont, he ended up uh, aiming to be in the legislature in Congress. And once he went to Congress as an independent, he basically became a Democrat in everything but name, just by just by virtue of necessity of how you have to do business there. Not only in terms of you have to like bring home the bacon, which means you have to make concessions to the military industrial complex, but you also have to caucus with somebody, and you have to you have to uh, work with these people that you're that you're there with, or you're not going to be able to accomplish anything. So the fact that he basically ran on a Democratic Party ticket for president makes perfect sense because that's what he'd been all along. And so, you know, I think that if there is, you know, trying to play this, like, and he seems to be getting deeper and deeper into it than ever. So, yeah. you know, trying to play this game with like the Democratic Party, like of this, like this, what I think people have called like the inside outside strategy. I, it, and it ends inside, like it's, it doesn't seem to ever end outside, you know? I don't know. Um, I mean, yeah, I've seen that. That's why I like, I identify with the left caucus. I've been a part of the left caucus in DSA, right? But I, although I myself like will fuck around with the Democratic Party, um, because the older the older generation in DSA who's been in part of this inside outside strategy for so long, they do they fall in line with the Democrats, like, and that should never be. Like if you're operating as a socialist in the Democratic Party, you should be there for your ends and your ends only. Like especially if you're not you're not an elected official who's trying to actually move policy. You're just like one person. You should stand on your principles um, and not be like, oh, it's our duty to vote for 
you know, Al Gore or whatever. Yeah, right. uh, John, John, I mean, because like the DSA did endorse John Kerry, didn't they? I mean, I don't think we did. I think that's a myth. Um, well, I read it on a little website called Wikipedia right before this podcast. All so right, all right. You may want to you may want to check your facts. Uh, yeah, I feel like I've looked big that one news. up. Big news. <laughs> big if true. Well, I anyway, wasn't not that big of a deal because no. I think um, when I was a young anti-war liberal, I I, I was um, I campaigned for John Kerry, but I wasn't even old cut, enough. Cut his mic. Cut his mic. Get him out of here. <laughs> but on, um, he, he threw his medals into the ocean to Vietnam. Come on. Yeah, I thought he was cool because he did that. Okay. <laughs> Didn't he go like scuba dive to get them back or something like that afterwards? Like, no, I'm just making that up. But it sounds like something he would do, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Obviously, John Kerry was a, a phony, but um, that's something we all can agree on. But I was going to say, I guess I see the DSA as the real opportunity if it's going to win, and. It's going to be if the younger um, people who are joining kind of somehow overcome the uh, the desire of the leadership that wants to reconcile with the Democratic Party, but, you know. Well, I would say, I mean, about half the last elected MPC was out of the left caucus. You know, we got Bhaskar Sankara as one of the vice chairs. Our other vice chair um, is pretty sympathetic to left caucus positions. Um, but not to the existence of the left caucus necessarily. Um, and uh, we have a very good chance. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking forward to going to the convention and seeing what we have to work with because it's a completely yeah. different organization. <laughs> when, yeah. when, when is your convention? Can you try August. August, okay. Grant's been waiting patiently to rant about something. Uh... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so do you, do you feel though that you can see the DSA in the future as a rank and file run sort of organization where there isn't an old guard that dominates things? I'm not saying you need to purge anyone. I just, it sounds like you're running against issues with that. So do, do you see a, a, what, what's the future of? Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't like support purges. Um, but I do, I mean, DSA is, you know, in all of our materials, very about how we're about radical democracy. And so I would encourage that to be pushed through all of our institutions. And uh, more often than not, it's an issue of resources and just being able to uh, manage that. Uh, since we're like this decentralized organization that covers the entire United States, like yeah, I mean, I'm and I'm the late cast member, so I really can't speak to your individual politics. You know, I, I'm I'm thinking about the DSA. No, but you bring up a good point. You know, things like that. Um, so, yeah, I think honestly, if I was to advise the left caucus, I think they should start a, a publication, just kind of start debating out different issues. And kind of having a common forum for strategy it, that isn't, isn't that, just a mailing list. Isn't that kind of Jacobin though? I mean, like that's yeah, that's to be Jacobin. <laughs> so confirmed. Oh. Jacobin is the official publication of the DSA left caucus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Like, uh, does does Jacobin as a whole really advocate exit from the Democratic Party? I mean, there's certainly like issues that were kind of 
like geared towards that dream. <laughs> but I think as a as a coherent kind of politic, uh, Jacobin, uh, you know, if it amounts to anything, it's just sort of all right. Look, we got to build our tendency. Um, we have people that I identified as like the socialist right and the socialist center talking to each other. And that's what makes Jacobin interesting. It has people arguing for working class independence. It has people arguing for, I mean, you know, we just got to like, like have like, I don't know the, the, the recent one, the party we need that had the idea of like a party where you shared candidates with the Democrats on like a ballot line or something. I mean, I don't know. It was, I hadn't read something like that before, but I think more or less that's right wing kind of socialism. That's uh, like not breaking away. Um, so I think it's complicated. I think the left caucus actually has probably better politics than Jacobin. Uh, I mean, no, it, we don't. <laughs> really? Um, I, I'm not sure. Like it's like I said, like the, or maybe, sorry, who's talking to me right now? I'm sorry. This is Lexi. Hi. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, like I said before, um, it's the left caucus is as multi-tendency as the organization at large, almost, you know, we lack like Zionist social Democrats, but, um, but in general though, you have the strategic point that centrist strategic point of wanting to break away from the Democrats. Yeah, but I think it's based on like, if you read Blueprint for a new party, like our goal is to break away from the Democratic Party, like, or what I said throughout this, like the goal is to freaking destroy the Democratic Party, but it's, we don't, we lack a material base. Like we, we don't have, we don't have a real right, base I, to do that with right. at this moment, right? That's now that that's a hundred percent true. Like the, the the material base is lacking, and there are, this like DSA is part of a political effort to try to revive a working class political base. And yeah. I think the, the DSA is clearest about this. The DSA is putting out um, the uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Jacobin is putting out Catalyst, and they have uh, like Robert Brenner is one of the lead ed editors. He just did an article that has like a few people from EndNotes kind of like uh, that he thinks in, in the credits and it d definitely shows on his analysis. And um, there's this interesting theoretical overlap here where there's a recognition that there isn't the kind of proletarian self-activity that a left-wing communist and a centrist communist and you know the old school social democrats even were all relying on and labor anarchists and etc. Mm -hmm. And that we're stuck in a situation where we have this new class that Harrington is referring to. Um, I mean, honestly, you know, one could unsympathetically call these techies or, or I'm not, not techies, but yuppies. Uh, I heard, right. I heard some people joke that Harrington thought that yuppies were the new revolutionary class, which is a, a gross exaggeration. Um, I mean, there's, some, it seems I got my impression reading it. There was, I feel like there might be something to that. I mean, maybe it's a crude like vulgarization of his thesis, but it's, I mean. it's, it's, it's not fair. It's funny. It's not fair. Um, but I have to say though, is that I think the dominant development in class consciousness and class conflict has been hatred of this middle stratum and this like hate, like just class hatred is directed at this manager class, this professional class, what the Aaron Reichs are calling the PMC yeah. professional the, manager class. the political class. system in general as well. The, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. the bureaucracy. Well, well what about student debt? Well, I mean, what about I, it? I mean, I think like the new class that he's describing has changed radically since that time period because 
these people, I mean, I'm unemployed and I'm, I don't know, in college they told me I would be techno managerial, but that's never happened. Right. Um, Same. Well, um, the, the basis of the university changed. Like, it, it, it basically became a way to uh, promise people or promise like an evaporating middle class, like class mobility that doesn't really exist. So I mean, he talked about this a little bit about like the devaluation of like the degree um, as like a as a maybe I don't know, you could say maybe like a piece of capital or something like that. But yeah, it, yeah and that's you know and that that's basically gone forward on steroids. <laughs> like it's it's reached a point. And plus, you know, there's also the phenomenon um, of you know globalization where like these managerial skills are like the division of labor in terms of you know like tech work and managerial stuff is being spread globally as well. Um, so it's, it, it certainly complicates the picture, compared, at least in comparison to what he was talking about here uh, yeah. in, in, the, in the piece, uh, the new class in the, in the left. Well, that's where his analysis of collectivism actually makes sense in thinking about globalization. Because in other respects, atomization is predominated, not collectivism. Yeah. Like... No, I saw that um, when I first started reading the piece, I just thought it was another, it was going to be another one of the, like, Harrington is talking about a period of time I can't recognize because it's, like, pre-neoliberalism, and he didn't, un he didn't see that shit coming. Um, but then I did recognize so much of what we're seeing now in this, yeah, yeah, piece. He definitely well, did think... seem a bit, like, overly sanguine about the pro prospects of that particular, like, grouping, like, breaking left. Because uh, it certainly did, uh, in spite of like the maybe the period of like you know campus activism of like the nineteen sixties. Well, he he and he throws Kautsky in there as one of the people who's kind of more sanguine about the class against Bakunin. You know, well, and I, yeah, I, I was gonna add. Well, the whole Kautskyan thesis is that you know the merger formula is that socialism as an idea, as a theory, and an idea develops within the. Um, basically the left wing of the petty bourgeois, like it develops in a minority of the petty bourgeois, and then the labor movement develops as a separate thing almost, and the idea is to merge the two. And so I mean, that's a very like simple way of explaining it, but um, I, I think Harrington's new class is essentially petty bourgeois through their intellectual property, but they are insecure in their position, so a lot of them will tend to socialism. And so essentially the question is how to bridge that division between these, you know, petty bourgeois socialist intellectuals and the working class, because it's kind of basically how, it's just, that's been how social students have been historically, have been essentially like a coalition between kind of highly paid workers and professionals who have theoretical attachments to socialism and then um, proletarians and skilled workers and whatnot. Well, I'm, and I'm just kind of like thinking out loud here, but I wonder how much of like the culture war plays into this, because so much of that is built on a kind of like mutual resentment between, you know, people who sort of like view themselves as above like the sort of vulgarity of like, you know, like working class consumer culture. And then like the working class consumer, the people who consume working class culture, you know, almost the whole thing is like fueled by a kind of uh, resentment of anyone who like, you know, thinks they're, t they're too good for NASCAR and so on and so forth. You know what I mean? Like, does that, yeah, does that make any sense or does it, sure, am I just talking shit right now? <laughs> well, that's a good point is how much like a lot of, you know, potential class identity just gets kind of derailed into other forms of identity that are just kind of pointless and stupid, you know? 
Patrick. Lee. I mean, I understand the resentment, and I understand. You know, I, I fucking hate you know these people as well. I just you know it's not, be- but it's not because they don't watch NASCAR. You know, like they're just fucking smug assholes. Like <laughs> <laughs> the thing with like that sort of country hick identity, like for lack of a better term term i know it's kind of derogatory but um it's basically has been adopted among like sort of petty bourgeois conservatives like a good chunk of the trump voters are like small business owners that sort of thing it's not really like these sort of poor white quote-unquote white working class that has been like sort of plastered all about through the media and that sort of thing that's mostly just a strategy by the Democratic Party to just, like, ignore, like, left-wing economic issues, basically. Like, that whole narrative is yeah. just a way, way to cop out of that. But, yeah, basically the entire culture wars is like a battle within the, manager, the managerial class between like, these sort of, and the petty bourgeois as a whole between, like, these sort of, like, woke NGO types and, like, their sympathizers and corporations and whatever. Basically, sort of, like, higher end of it, I guess. And then you have this sort of lower-ish end, I guess, maybe? I I don't know if they're really lower end all that much in class terms of class. But they, they like to position frame themselves as sort of lower class, lower class, even though they're not really all that lower than the sort of woke yuppie types. Yeah, I, I noticed that a lot with a lot of Trump voters was that they weren't proletarians. You know, they usually came from petty bourgeois backgrounds, but they saw themselves as having some kind of, you know, as being like a, almost like a minority and not having their voice being heard in society, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Well, and on the flip of that, there are like, you know, bus drivers and I don't know, I mean, teachers are sort of professional or whatever, nurses are sort of professional, but people who still buy into the culture wars on like the liberal cosmopolitan anti-gun, anti-NASCAR side, right? Oh, yeah. I mean. Yeah. That's what, that's what makes it so effective. <laughs> I mean. And, 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 you know, that's a gateway for all of us. None of us were born communists, probably. Yeah, I mean, um, I wasn't. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's sort of one of the reasons why, like, much of the culture wars has been like consumerist in a way. Like, it's been battles over like fucking buying Starbucks coffee to trigger whatever fucking uh, to trigger SJWs writing <laughs> Trump on the side of fucking Starbucks coffee and stuff like that. Because it's specifically petty bourgeois in its nature. And that's that's been, like, how politics has been for a while since, like, civil institutions have collapsed. And general involvement in politics has sort of collapsed in on itself. Well, that's that's actually something I really wanted to, to get to about DSA, uh, generally, is that the, my worry with DSA work with the Democratic Party is that the sliver of people who are really going to make up, and I, I mean, I'm skeptical of the degree to which we can force this anyway, right, as, as leftists. Um, we talked a little bit about the merger formula earlier, you know, you have socialist intellectuals, um, 
people from the student activist strata, uh, organic working class intellectual, that's still even a, a sort of isolated position to be in within the working class, um, all coming up with ideas. Um, how do you bridge the gap with, with a, a workers' movement? And I think that what would be a workers' movement, if there was one, if there is, was one, is not being fired up by democratic party level demands, um, and is not being and is not the kind of person. Even though there are working class people who would call their congressmen about the health care bill, right? That's a big issue. Uh, you know that could be important for a lot of people. I understand the impulse to work with them, the democratic party on that, but on a, on a larger level, I think that so many of the people that would really make up revolutionary change in the United States that would actually bring extreme democracy onto the table for us would be people who are just not being fired up by by that kind of within the system thing. I mean, I'm from New Jersey. I, I'm feeling the anti-politics right now. I mean, we're, we're really mad at Chris Christie for, uh, you know, sitting on the beach while we all... Uh, couldn't go into the state parks or go camping or anything like that, you know, this holiday weekend. But and it, it's ultimately a bigger sort of concern than than even that kind of thing where, where I just worry that, you know, there's a big question. How do you get the vast majority of people who are maybe not depoliticized but anti-politicized to wake up to their to their self-interests, right? But I definitely think that we need to keep in mind that these these demands the Democratic Party has been making, if we just match those, that hasn't inspired those people. We live in an era of declining participation rates, even for somebody like Corbyn. I mean, that that voting basis was mostly professional class. Um, the working class well, the, is not interested in politics proper right now. Right, right. Well, the thing about Corbyn right, right. is... He kind of brought something new to the table, even you know him. I'm not saying the there's nothing that... to Corbin, but I'm I'm saying that you know the broader principle of it is that politics proper is something that most, even when it's yeah. decent, like seeming like Corbin, something that I can look at and be like, wow, this seems like a good guy and and has some ideas that are to the left of the mainstream. I so wholeheartedly Class agree. People are so turned off to this kind of politics. Even even that radical, but within the system, has has really not attracted. No, liberalism has failed us in every way, um, and like us being like the majority of working people, um, and most people know that. Um, I. And that maybe that's why I find myself on the left of the party is, or I mean, not the, oh my God, I don't do that. It's the left of DSA. Um, is because, yeah, I think we shouldn't be, I think the tendency within DSA more often than not, especially kind of the old guard, is to reach to our right and to make our demands, our program, our messaging palatable to sort of mainstream Democrats. Or, or left-wing Democrats, whatever. Um, whereas, yeah, I believe that there is much more potential in just like the majority of people who aren't involved at all. And yeah. 
Well, what's good is that we're seeing we're seeing kind of like the neoliberal center and consensus uh, starting to fail, because it's not it's no longer really delivering on what sort of meager bits that it promised. Um, but the trick now is to people are beginning to sort of see this, and they either blink left or right. It seems like right now, more often than not, it's right, at least in the United States. Um, the trick now is to get to people to the point where it's not just they don't, it's not just um, the particular current forms of the administration of capitalism are bad, but that capitalism itself is bad, because you know if the, one of the dangers of electing somebody like Corbyn or like Sanders is that because on some level they still promise to administer capitalism, yeah, they're up against a number of they're up against like the very economic like structural components that necessitated neoliberalism to an extent. And so they're going to, sort of like the Mitterrand government in France in the 1980s, uh, they're going to run up against like the same kind of problems and that would just, you know, create further openings for the right, I think. So, you know, I think that for group like the DSA, I think the social, like hammering on the socialist element uh, is going to be, that's going to be like the most important task for, you know, I guess the left sections of it. And I think, you know, it's, it's future as a whole, I think. Uh, you know, that's just, of course, that's just my pedestrian observation. Yeah, well, the, the DSA is, whatever else we can say about it, you know, really mobilizing on some key positions of what the center might think of as the minimum program, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at um, SB um, 562, which is like the universal health care bill, that was in the California State Senate and got shot down in the assembly. Like, you know, I was looking at that bill and, and just, you know, without really looking into it, just saying to myself, shit, if DSA gets single payer through, I'll fucking join the DSA. Fuck. <laughs> like, am I just going to sit here while the minimum program is, is going to be carried out piecemeal and I'm just sitting on my ass? Um, but then, you know, I don't know. Like, I kind of, in my, you know, left com, NICOM kind of skeptical like sitting on the sidelines saying, eh, I bet Jerry Brown will fucking tank it and make everyone look like a loser. And, you know, the, the thing that actually happened was that the California Assembly um, speaker um, took it down. And there's a sort of interesting uh, split, at the, is a charitable way to put it, in how people are looking at this, whether it's a betrayal on, on the part of Speaker uh, Rendon, Anthony Rendon, um, or whether there's just a genuine structural problem because in 1998 there was a proposition 98 that was uh passed that roughly 40 percent of all um money that the state receives in taxes needs to go to k-12 education and because of the way the bureaucratic math adds up that would mean an enormous uh new expenditure in education and so and apparently that's the, those are the, well, that's, that's where the whole where's the money campaign is coming from i mean but then the real basis of that would be prop 13 passed in uh 1970 i can't remember but um that just caps property taxes which is why our schools don't have enough money in the first place right prop 98 was a reaction to prop yeah, 13 exactly and you know, was act it's one of, it's one of these dialectical things where something is passed for a good reason and ends up being part of the reinforcing structure. And I don't use dialectical lightly. Well, we should have. I mean, we. I mean, repealing Prop Thirteen would be a fight that I could. I don't know. 
I think it's becoming a more mainstream position, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah I think Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren came out for it, so. Well, Is I she... think, yeah. Uh -huh. I think it's in general sort of, uh, at least up to this point, it's been sort of inside baseball. And even though I'm, I think I'm, I'm one of these like class trees and lizards that wants to destroy capitalism. And I think, oh, I know politics. I didn't fucking know about this. Like, um, and so if I, I was involved with this single payer campaign and I found out about this shit, I'd be like, wait, what? You know, like, I don't know. Like, there's a problem that actually Harrington gets quite to the, the, the heart of between, like, intellectual labor of kind of putting together. I, I don't know. I think this distinction can be applied. The intellectual labor of putting together an effort like a single payer campaign versus the actual manual labor of the door knocking, the, you know, like doing the everyday uh, work to try to get something through. And I don't know. I, I have no idea what the situation was like on the single payer campaign. But did all the rank and file know about this? Uh, Prop 98 problem and and how to certainly sell not this. no. Oh, I, I do want to say what the um, maybe instance you know we got someone who's like inside the DSA. There's like a video on like the DSA front page where it has like a like the part of the video is like all the workers and there's like a cop uh, in there. Can somebody, the can some, yeah, can somebody do something about that? Is there? Could you t take that like to the convention? Because I mean that's not a good yeah, look. That's important. It's really tough. We I mean. I'm a moderator on the Dank Memes Dash for DSA, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that was a knockout, throwdown fight. And not the worst part is not everyone in DSA like agrees about the class position of cops. Um, <sighs> but um, yeah, which I mean is obviously how that happened. So I mean that uh. was just a volunteer. And then okay, the best. The best take is just to assume she's actually a stripper. <laughs> yeah, we got we got to we got to do head cannon. We got to do head head cannon on this thing for it to work. Jesus Christ! <laughs> uh, I, I mean, her hair is down. A cop would never have her hair down like that. Um, I mean, I mean to be fair, I've seen like anarchists like defend like having more cops on the street because like Jeremy Corbyn supported it. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know. It, it's so, even so you're the best of us slip up. Expressing solidarity with sex workers. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's I'm, what it's I'm sorry, about. Patrick, did I just interrupt you? No, 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 it's it's fine. It's fine. Well, I think I think this points out a, a problem, though. I'm going to call it Lasallian drift. Yeah, I think right. something like a left caucus. It's that's a, that's like the worst of the fast defeaters. I really think you'll you'll get the attention of the organization if you stand really firmly against things like that. Though I I think that that's I think that that's really gotta go. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. people people think standing really firmly on stuff like that is petty. Um, like it gets it gets messy. Um, and we're just grateful when anyone does anything. So the fact that Los Angeles chapter made this video, we're like, oh, it's such a good video. Hooray, thank you. And yeah, and so there's there was no oversight in terms of like, how did you put a cop in there? Yeah, well, that's that that is like a real problem. Like in pretty much any like far left group today is like resources, and so it's kind of anyone who's just willing to do anything for free essentially is going to have like some level of power within the organization by virtue of the fact that they're you know that they're doing that because the, you know it, it's so resource poor that you know you'll take what you can get. 
What's bizarre is I think the the LA DSA member I've talked to the most because I don't really know any of them is also a, a Black Lives Matter activist. So I'll have to talk to him, but I don't think he's that engaged with the local. Mm. You know, it's a lot of just uh, kind of media media types who are who are uh, newly newly engaged in politics. Makes yeah. sense for makes sense oh, for LA. Yeah, yeah, the crunchiest part about that video was it also had Karl Marx in there yeah. <laughs> too. Too so. I mean, that's someone's really confused. About right wing kind of socialism and about the history of the workers' movement is that, you know, yeah, police were often thought that that way in some of the big awesome social democratic movements, even though these people were the front line of the bourgeois state, mm -hmm. and the the whole point of drawing. I think like class independent lines in a situation where capitalism predominates and the bourgeois state dominates everything is opposition to the bourgeois state. Like, and, and that's far from being like a, a petty, you know, dispute is pro is one of the most Im important principles. And I, I, maybe that sounds like kind of anarchisty, but you know, there's like a, the state will co-opt our, our, our efforts. Like they they'll be glad to, if they're constructive, if not, they want to destroy them. I mean, if you're a cop, it's, you're it's, willing to arrest homeless kids and stuff like that. Come shoot on, black people. It's probably shoot homeless kids too. Yeah, yeah, they're terrible. Yeah. And and I think the way that like contemporary, like anti-racism has gone is is constructive in in the way that maybe it's you know maybe it's like re people are really in our, in our face about abolishing prisons and you know killing all cops. But like the the point is is that there's been a space opened up to talk about that the bourgeois state is not our friend and that there's there's a way there's got to be a way of intervening in the s sort of socialist politics to make this point like even if our socialist utopia has a role for coordinating institutions that might be called states or something mm -hmm. like that this particular state has been anti-communist for over a century and wants to destroy anything like democratic socialism side note uh, I don't think there's actually any current like Black Lives Matter group uh, running on a slogan of "Kill all cops." Although I would certainly welcome it. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean that would be a big improvement, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But it's, I'm sorry. It's it's. Did you sort of Ray McKesson said, "Kill all cops." Is that what we said on air? I didn't fucking say that. I'm just saying. Was, you said yeah, you yeah. said the phrase. You said "kill all yeah. cops" was like a, was a phrase. I, yeah. No, I, I'm just saying contemporary anti-racism has a um, you know like pretty you know like. Has a pretty strong end. Yeah, you're right. No one's ever said kill all cops, though. No one's ever said kill all cops. Well, that's because you're not supposed to say kill all cops. But I think a lot of people, when they say all cops are bastards, are thinking, you know, like that it would pretty much be morally justified when they see mar cops get murked. No, there's like no, no, <laughs> yeah, I mean, no except, fucking tears for cops. Except for, yeah, except and, for maybe iced tea. I don't think anyone's actually. Yeah, or, or, or like, or when, you know, people like the what happened in Dallas. Or, or the Christopher Dorner stuff, like, people really understand and, and get the resentment against the state, even hard, I don't know, like, so, some some of the more crazy mili militia types actually get this, too. Like, ha hashtag Team Dorner. Yeah, like, and, and I don't know, that's that's out there, and I mean, that's not, like, the most constructive, perhaps, thing that we, we want to, like, engage with, but, I mean, if you're talking about smash the state, these people really do hate the, the state apparatus. 
Yeah, All right. I, I, say, I was Black wait. Lives Matter people who are very militantly anti-cop. But they would never say kill all cops. I mean, they're like they're in a position like DSA where they're gonna they're gonna have like a relatively politically safe message. Like it's not people out of Black Lives Matter who I see like celebrating cop deaths. It's you know. Other yeah, I guess. The problem is, how do you build a party that is going to like not try to clamp down on that kind of stuff, but still be a mass party? It's it's very hard to do because you know there's obviously going to be just insane media attacks. You know when your rank and file members are saying stuff like "kill all cops," and you know the leadership is completely fine with it and doesn't like <laughs> doesn't actually condemn it, or the leadership <laughs> will condemn it, and that politically compromises you know the party and makes it look um performance and milk toast to you know the real radical you know rank and file of the class so it's, it's yeah it's a tough line and you know it's a tough balance to draw i guess yeah at the same time at the same time you don't want to invite state repression and like i i'm not i'm i have no sympathy for cops or anything like that but you know just like having rhetoric like that, extreme rhetoric like that, could invite like state repression, and it has in the past. And no, I mean I've heard anarchists literally say that we need to be getting guns and killing cops right now. Like that, that, that that's is, what I'm talking about. I just, I just wanted to talk about iced tea. I didn't want to like spark off like a whole debate about. <laughs> Capitalism. It's what gives us 200 kinds of cars, 4 million kinds of apps, and 57 kinds of Hemsworths. But what is it exactly? Capitalism is a man-made economic system based on profit. It takes wealth and resources away from the public and puts it in the hands of private capitalists. A few become enormously wealthy on the backs of the many. This consolidated control of profit and political power leads to extreme inequality. These factors all make capitalism profoundly alienating, which is why everyone and everything seems so distant, so hopeless, so odd. Thanks, capitalism. But there's another way. Democratic Socialism. I know, I know, you probably think democratic socialism is for strong men with elaborate mustaches and French college students. It is. Because democratic socialism is for everyone. Democratic Socialism. Song. I wasn't talking about Black Lives Matter. I was talking about people who sympathize with Black Lives Matter that really, you know, are are there, are like in yeah. that, you know, full Russian nihilist, you know, right. Nebuchadnezzar, like the revolutionary right. is is a uh, doomed man. Kind of thing. I just, I just, I kind of like, I just kind of like that phrase actually. I mean, I just I, that stuck out to me. I was like, yeah, somebody said that, but it sounds like something somebody might say. What kill all um, cops? Yeah. Uh, I just, I just want to get more uh, followers, even if they're all in the NSA. What kill all cops? <laughs> kill all cops. <laughs> yeah. Um. So oh, better you than me. We need so to we're we're at about we're at about like an hour in. Uh, is there anything else we want to talk about or? Um. I don't know. Um. Do we go? Do we go sufficiently into the healthcare bill? Because that I I I I just want to reiterate, like minimum program, 
Okay. Oh, but I was gonna, I was gonna say I think our work with the Democrats is overstated. Like, I, there are some chapters who do like the inside part of the inside outside strategy a lot harder than others. You know, there are people in our organization who still really believe in realignment, but that's not most of the work of DSA. Most of it is like building a community of socialists and doing more of this kind of direct action or like community organizing kind of work. Okay. Yeah. I guess where I differ is kind of, I don't know, I guess the Leninist position or whatever would be that you just kind of, you have to get rid of that, that, that faction of the party that really emphasizes that work and is kind of on the right and that you know, aren't willing to you know, condemn imperialism and whatnot. You are trying to keep friendly with the, the Democrats. You kind of basically have to make a split with the right wing of the labor movement from the beginning because it is, um, it's kind of the lesson that um, a lot of people take from uh, you know, 1914 and how the SPD ended up supporting World War One. basically, is that they did kind of let, you know, the, these right-wing socialists who were basically just, you know, militaristic trade unionists into the party, and they grew influenced by the time it was too late, and they weren't able to really split from them. Yeah, I think we're in a very different historical moment. But go, wait, what are you saying? No, I, I just wanted to point out that all... all like existing Marxism, like actually had that problem, including the stable forms of Leninism, you know, or Stalinism that actually like coalesced, like they, they all had that capitulation. And, uh, Oh yeah. Like a uh, popular front Stalinism is very similar in that regard. Yeah. Probably worse, and, honestly worse than the social Democrats were <laughs> the classic yeah. social. Democrats it, were. It's a, it, it's a structural thing. And I, I think, I think we, you know, we need to take what Andy's saying, like Andy saying, um, pretty pretty seriously. Like this is a different historical, like situation. And the fact is, you know, the working class is not moving, and so the class institutions we have. I, I guess I'm projecting now, but the class institutions that we have are all connected to the Democratic Party, as much of a betrayal machine as it is. And, yeah. and I would say, yeah. let's yeah. Um, I mean, those more like uh, trade unionist, imperialist forces are not the ones gaining power within DSA. You know, they're they're kind of yeah. a relic. They're a relic. Um, That's kind of my question: and, is is there kind of a movement away from them? Um, and we don't know who, there is. who who this upsurge is. They're like neophytes. They're like. Um, I, I couldn't tell you. Like, I mean, all the people I've talked to are pretty rad and they're much more in like our age group and, you know, they're willing to talk to Democrats but not really like engage in the party apparatus or anything. Um, and yeah, they're about building socialism. That's it. And like these, they don't necessarily know how to do it, but they're really into figuring out how to organize in communities and workplaces. So so would you invite weirdo, bookish, swampside people to like come try to be in a DSA and, and yeah. destroy the Democratic Party? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, don't like please don't destroy DSA because I love it. But um and you don't have to, you don't have to engage with the work that is about like destroying the Democratic Party, but like just come 
engage with the debates and the education and the campaigns and just drink beer with us and you know absolutely i mean yeah i've been saying that i don't know i think the best way to go right now is united front over a common campaigns that we both find to be um good and work at from that basis towards unity i think is the, is the best way to really build strong unity and i mean that's something the left caucus is about is about building coalitions with other left formations as opposed to democrats or nonprofits or what have you um but it's just not available in most places yeah i mean just i don't blame you because it's just the left in most places is just crank tanky sex or trot sex that you don't really want around at your demonstrations to be honest I mean, yeah we work with psl and and honestly my like east coast left caucus people were like that's that's crazy. Why would you work with PSL? And I'm like, I mean, that's what we got. The only problem, my only real problem with PSL, I mean, obviously they have horrible politics, but yeah. they always bring a ton of their signs to every protest and hand them out to make Google that they have tons of members at every protest when they just have like three members at the protest. Like, that's what they're like in Tampa, at least. That's we're pretty clever, though, if you think about it. That. Yeah, we're trying to do that, kind of. But we're like much more protective of our signs. Like, we spend money printing like nice signs, and then we're like, ah, let's just hand them to people we know, actually. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's something really pathetic about just handing out signs to random strangers to make your party look bigger. PSL, it isn't WWP. Well, I guess that ruins our ability to have PSL on our show. I mean, uh, although I, I do want to say we did we did mention sex. I, I do kind of want to call this series that we do like the joy of sex, and, so, <laughs> and so this would be like. Well, I hope you don't find that characterization the DSA too offensive. But I mean, it is still pretty small relative to most other political. You know, Absolutely, it's fine. Yeah, there's a great Marx quote. Um, We're all sex. For- from one of his letters where he's talking about when the working class is in decline, you know, socialists default to the sect system and that the sect system is smashed up by the rise of the workers. And that's that's yeah. the only sense in which I would be for the, you know, the end of DSA or CLT is, is only if their mission is fulfilled and we have the party we need. Come Absolutely. on, workers. Oh, yeah, Come on, I workers. Think- rise up. Rise up, workers. Come on. Rise, you <laughs> Uh, anyway, what I was saying was that that's kind of what McNair's whole strategy kind of is, is you have to, it's not so, but if it, it's not, you have to basically be prepared to merge into a larger party when the time is right and not reproduce your organization for the sake of its own reproduction, but be prepared to merge it with other parties or whatever and not actually kind of protect, be protective of your organization like it's property basically. Yeah, and that's challenging, but it's definitely my intention and a lot of a lot of DSA's intention. Is uh, is Mike McNair hot in DSA right now? I've heard the name. I haven't read any. I think I think uh, um, DSA would would kind of benefit from it. It's, it's like I don't know. It's kind of old school social democracy restated with a kind of like um, I don't know sympathy for Leninism, but ultimately takes a lot of Kautsky's arguments on the Russian Revolution. That sounds like what's hot in DSA right now, at least among like the more intellectual or the left caucus or what have you. Now the thing is, yeah. this is like uh, an Oxford like legal historian making the argument, not just some weird. Crank. Weird. All right. Yeah, I'll it's check it out. Worth reading. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, if definitely a revolutionary strategy by Mike McNair. McNair's pretty cool. And we sell his book. No, I'm kidding. We don't sell his book. <laughs> yeah, uphold Mike McNair. Uphold Mike McNair thought. Yeah, I'll send. I'll send it to you for free. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think I've read any. I like forget the names of authors all the time. Um, I, yeah. I hear Kautsky coming up a lot more than. You know, well, bef- that's good because he he should be talking about more. This <laughs> uh, gets a bad rep because Lennon broke with him, but his old shit is pretty fucking good. So, in conclusion, uh, <laughs> Google Mike McNair, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show, Andy. Uh, this yeah, has been an interesting conversation. Good talking to you guys. Yeah, I learned a lot. Thank yeah. you. This was great. I met I met Andy during the whole Occupy scenario and haven't I don't know. I I kind of lost touch with the SA folks, but I'm hearing this whole thing definitely makes me feel like kind of like I've been a leftcom stoner and not like doing enough actual like life stuff and reading too fucking much. You know, right, it's gonna... just like we're building an institution, that's all. You know. Yeah. I I'm... I I, got, I did a pretty big dab today. <laughs> I mean, it is big, you know. It's, it's an accomplishment. I'm not, I read some Marcus Aurelius, you know. Like, at, I felt pretty cool because I was. It was a combination of high and low culture. I felt very novel. Okay, you join DSA, and I'll start doing that. Okay, uh, deal, deal. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for this week. Uh, sorry about the delay between episodes. We've never actually had on a guest like this in order to specifically ask them questions, so prepping for it threw us off a bit. Um, we also at times sort of referred to a Harrington piece. Um, the piece we were actually talking about was um, written by the DSA founder and guru Michael Harrington. It was called The New Class in the Left. Uh, we read a few other things, but they never really came up uh, directly in the way that we would unusual episodes where we would read something and then go through it. Um, Hopefully in the future we will do further episodes on... We're looking at groups like the IWW, the RCP, um, maybe do something on... even Maybe even CLT, if anyone has any questions about that. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, you can like us on Facebook or leave us a review on iTunes. So until next time, keep your keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. You people killed Rosa Luxemburg, you know that though, right? You killed Rosa Luxemburg, and you still haven't said that you're sorry.